0: Is the world on fire? Hi everyone, you're listening to a podcast created by students and alumni at the Kroc School of Peace Studies at the University of San Diego. I'm Leah Appleby. And today we're excited to bring you a special three-part series interviewing the activists who have been selected for the 2023, 2024, Women Peacemakers Fellowship at the Kroc School. Our fellows are joining us from Afghanistan, Burma, and Iran to share their unique perspectives on what it takes to build peace from the diaspora. Welcome to part three of our special Women Peacemaker series where I'll be interviewing Sveta Muhammad Ishaq, an award-winning women's rights activist, a TEDx speaker, and social entrepreneur from Afghanistan. Sveta is a dedicated to empowering women economically and changing the single story narrative about her home country. Her work on national and international platforms has been an instrument in promoting unheard Afghan experiences and amplifying Afghan women's voices during the Taliban regime. She is the founder of several organizations, including Ayat, a social enterprise that empowers women through the fashion industry in Shadari, an NGO that uses storytelling and community building to tell the true stories of Afghan women and girls. Listen in to today's episode as we discuss Afghan superwoman, the power of storytelling and the meaning of home. So we were curious, Mm -hmm. where did you grow up? What are some early childhood
1: memories that really embody your experience as an Afghan woman? Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for the question. I mean, currently I live in the UK uh, and this is the sixth country that I live in. And whenever I tell people that, oh, the UK is the sixth country that I live in, they just find it very fascinating. But they don't understand the background story of that, like why I ended up in the UK in the first place and uh, like moved around different countries. So I was born in Afghanistan. And I was six months old when uh, my family, just like any other Afghan family, uh, was forced to flee Afghanistan and we became refugees and we took refuge in Tajikistan, the neighboring country. So I was only six months old, a baby, and I studied there till fourth grade. And then we moved to Kazakhstan, another country. Yeah. So I actually grew up in Central Asia and um, uh, growing up, I actually, when I look back and I kind of think and reflect. I had this identity crisis, I would say, um, that I obviously knew I was Afghan, uh, but I was going to a Russian language school and uh, we had neighbors who were not Afghans, like from Tajikistan and Russia and other countries and Kazakhs, and I knew I was Afghan and we had, obviously we would interact with Afghans, we would have guests who are Afghans, but I didn't have this sense of like, oh my God, like I am Afghan or yeah, sort of that patriotism or like that love for my country until we moved there. So when the situation was improving in Afghanistan and in 2009, my family decided to move back to Afghanistan. Once I put my foot on Afghan soil, I felt it. I felt that this is my country. I belong here. I, I fell in love with Afghanistan. I fell in love with the people of my country and with the Afghan women with their bravery, with their resilience. And yeah, I just felt that this is my country. And um, in there, I actually started my activism and advocacy. And the first women that I actually looked up to as a Afghan superwoman that I say, it was my aunt. So I would actually see her and witness how she would go every day out of home to provide for her six children and her husband. and, um, and like seeing her bravery, and she was doing all of that and without the um, adequate support. Then later realized that a lot of Afghan women, they are kind of bearing this burden of caretaking, providing and leading in their communities without adequate support. And they're so brave and resilient. And seeing that, I just found my passion, which is still doing that, like Afghan women and girls and uh, fighting for gender issues and gender justice. And um, so I was only 14 at that time and and I started my activism at the age of 14. So I started um, doing a lot of um, advocacy work, uh, joining different organizations, writing for their rights, amplifying their voices. I've worked with women from all the 34 provinces of Afghanistan, um, helping them um, publish their stories and uh, stories of resilience, of bravery. I'm just also thinking back to
0: how hard it would have been especially as a kid, because I think at the beginning, you know, when you move somewhere, you're trying to kind of fit in with everyone in those new countries. So I'm sure like moving from time to time was tricky to like, who am I? Do I belong to this culture? How am I different? How am I the same? How am I just a kid also like going to school and learning? And so that's interesting, too, to have that like coming home moment when you touched Afghanistan soil. Did you
1: feel it in your body, like, oh, this is where I belong? Definitely, definitely. You feel a, a different sense of calmness when you are there, and and honestly, I mean, as I mentioned before, like I've lived in six different countries, lived, and and I don't feel like I belong anywhere except uh, Afghanistan. And uh, I actually, when I came to the uh, cross school at the beginning, someone asked me. What is home to you and yeah. uh, and you have been to so many countries and have done so much so uh, what is home to you and it's just like I don't even think for a second before saying my home is Afghanistan mm-hmm. because that's where i feel i that's where I'm from, and that's where my blood is from, that's where. My- relatives everything my passion my work everything like my identity i'm definitely afghan i identify as an afghan right despite being away from a country for some time and and even now being forced to like not being able to return to afghanistan right so so i think um, no matter where in the world i am no matter where i will end up i will still identify myself as an afghan as i'm very proud of that identity and uh, yeah and i think that afghanistan is my home and will be my home forever yeah,
0: being touched by this is my roots. And wherever you go, you're holding those roots inside of you. So home is also like a mindset and holding it within your heart. And that sounds really cheesy. But also like, I think, yeah, when you know that this is where I belong, these are my people, and this is who I'm working for. It makes sense that that inspires your work. Exactly.
1: And that's such a sad reality for Afghans. We have been... uh... In conflict for over 40 years and um, and we have been scattered across the globe, like different countries seeking refuge. So it's very difficult. It's very difficult to like leave everything behind and start everything from scratch over and over again. And I've done that multiple of times. And honestly speaking, like at this point, I'm just tired. <laughs> and I think every every Afghan that I speak to, they're tired. They're just tired because it's just like multiple times they had to leave. Yeah, but but I'm still hopeful. Yeah, Mm -hmm. hopefully i will be able to return and just uh, live in my home. Mm -hmm. What are some of
0: the realities of working as an activist outside of your home country? It seems like some things might be easier. And on the other hand, some things might be harder being so far away. What are the factors that make it more complicated? And just your overall experience
1: working in the diaspora? I think one of the challenges that I personally faced is When you go to a new country, so for example, when I went to UK, it was a new country, completely new for me. So I had to, again, start everything from scratch. So I had to build a team. I had to switch our programming to online and then switch it to raising awareness. So that lack of network, I think, is the biggest challenge that I faced. But then I started changing that. So I created a stakeholder mapping. So mapping of all the organizations and individuals who are working to fight for Afghan women and girls rights um, in the UK. And so I collaborated with those organizations because we know that alone cannot be achieved anything. So I collaborated with that, and with them together, we are providing um, different projects. So we are currently supporting through my nonprofit organization, Afghan women, through capacity building programs, uh, awareness raising initiatives, and storytelling that's kind of on a challenge side that that is, but there are great things about living outside of Afghanistan is uh, that privilege of raising those voices. And uh, yeah, so just taking to the streets and protesting on the streets because that cannot happen in Afghanistan right now. The reality is very harsh now. So a lot of um, Afghan activists are, have been um, detained and have been arrested because of their, uh, because they were protesting on the streets. Regardless of political views and ethnicity and gender, you fight for one thing. You have a common goal of like fighting for Afghan women's rights and raising and amplifying their voices. So this is so powerful. So it actually reminded me of a march that I organized. I co-organized the first ever multi-stakeholder march for Afghan women and girls in London. It was in November last year, and it was in collaboration with Malala Fund as well. It was such a powerful. March. uh, Because again, like you see people coming from different political views. We were we're diverse, very diverse because in South Afghanistan, there are people coming from different ethnicities, coming different political views. We are a very diverse country. So despite that, we were there with one voice, with one demand um, to uh, really fight for Afghan girls and women's education and right to work, basic human rights. Right now that I look back, it was a very emotional experience. Mm -hmm. Honestly, it was so emotional that we are all outside of the country and mainly a lot of the people have left Afghanistan that time, but our heart and soul, everything is still in Afghanistan. And we are doing this advocacy work for them. So to me personally, it was such an emotional experience. So I think that's something, that's the power also of being like outside. And uh, despite your differences, you are just uh, one becoming one voice with one common goal to like raise awareness.
0: It would bring out a lot of emotion just being together with people who, like you, are having to have fled your country. And so that makes sense that like coming together despite the differences yeah. to fight for the rights of people in Afghanistan that sounds like a really beautiful experience that's really awesome that you were able to help co-host that with everyone and that there was so much rallying um, around that issue so that's really beautiful I was curious also as someone living outside of their home country you have this global perspective especially now six countries that you've lived in Mm -hmm. is the world on fire
1: honestly when I heard about this name of of the podcast is the world on fire it just reminded me of Afghanistan because I think that Right now the world just doesn't care as much about what's going on in Afghanistan, but it is still I would definitely say it's on fire. Like and that's what I do. Like I raise awareness, I speak about the situation of Afghan women and girls. So right now the situation is very dire if we take so that's definitely I would definitely say it's on fire. Especially on like women's rights issues. Um, so if you are a girl in Afghanistan, you are not able to go to school above sixth grade. You cannot go to university. You cannot work in most employment, including the government organizations and also the nonprofit organizations. You are completely eliminated from the public sphere Mm -hmm. participation. I think Afghanistan is just like a place of fire for Afghan women and girls, right? Specifically, I would say. Um, and not only that, even like right now there's we have humanitarian crisis, one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world is happening in Afghanistan, where two thirds of the population, which is like twenty eight million people, are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance, and that obviously impacts everyone and the situation is very devastating, a lot going on, like education crisis, women's rights crisis, humanitarian um concerns yeah and and right now, the most recent news, which is very heartbreaking are that that Pakistan is uh, deporting over 1.7 million Afghan refugees. Um, it's, it's the world's biggest mass deportation in history, in yeah. history. And and again, like it's not on the headlines, like nobody cares again, like nobody knows about it. I think this is like such a big, like it's a catastrophe, right? Yeah, so, um, so I think this is, again, like we need to talk about this and people should be aware about this deportation, this mass deportation.
0: A substantial number of those refugees from the deportation are women and children. What do you think awaits for
1: them as they return to Afghanistan, in your opinion? I think personally, a very dark future awaits them. Right now, for example, a lot of uh, refugees that will go back to Afghanistan, the girls, they, they just have to, they cannot go to school above sixth grade and the women cannot work. And uh they, they will not have any public presence. And um, especially a lot of those refugees were those women who were women at risk. So they actually fled the Taliban regime like uh, in 2021, like after the collapse, they fled that regime to to go, um, and now they have to go back. And then, so a lot of activist journalists are arrested. Recently, uh, Mathieu Loissa, who is a prominent um, activist, he's, he's uh, doing a lot of advocacy work for, Um, Afghan girls education in rural Afghanistan. He was arrested for 215 days. He was in prison. And and what was his fault? His only fault was that he was just raising awareness and demanding for girls to go to school. And that's all he demanded. And he was arrested uh, for seven long months. Also, obviously, as I mentioned, like there's humanitarian crisis, right? So it's, it's very, it's very challenging for everyone. So all these Afghans, who are in Pakistan, there are people who have been there for generations, like 40 years and since, since the war, the conflict started. They just, many of them, they left Afghanistan there. So Pakistan has become their home and they have been there for years and, and and they have never been to Afghanistan after that, right? And they don't even know anything about it, right? So they now they have to go back to afghanistan where they have never been there and they don't feel they i think they feel they definitely feel closer to pakistan because they have been there for like over 40 years so the situation is it's like really devastating it's really bad and um, and it's happening now as we are recording this podcast right now and sitting here and talking it's happening now the border right now in, in the border there are afghans uh, like just like sending the pakistan government is sending like uh, in buses Afghans they're deporting them, and from the Afghanistan side, the uh, Taliban are greeting these people and like putting them in the um tents uh to like to like survive for some time and on top of that, we have uh, winter coming right now it's mm-hmm. and it's we have like one of the difficult situations right now in Afghanistan right The winter people are actually usually dying during winter because they're outside and it's we have harsh winters as well. So the situation is very devastating on the refugees in Pakistan, and 1.7 million—it's a lot of lot of people. people. And and again, like why Again, like the world again is silent on this issue. I think we need to speak more about that. And um, on the women's crisis that is happening in Afghanistan, for like what awaits Afghan women is that the World Economic Forums Global Gender Gap actually ranked Afghanistan last out of 146 countries for women's education attainment and economic participation. And um, the Women Peace and Security Index also ranked Afghanistan last out of 177 countries. So in terms of the status of women, so you see like the extent, like the extreme situation that Afghan women will face when they go back. So this is all very concerning.
0: Are there ways that our listeners can help advocate for even spreading the news of what is happening in Afghanistan or like ways that they can
1: participate in order to help? Yes, definitely. Uh, We are signing right now. There's a petition going on for the Pakistan government to like stop the deportations. So it will be great if they can sign that um, petition online. It will take a few seconds for them, but it will change lives and it, it has the potential of changing the whole policy and, and situation yeah so that can and then second i think the other thing that can be done is to raise awareness like sharing the stories like what these refugees are doing and like what they're going through their fears yeah just sharing that even if right now we have this amazing tool of social media i think that the everyone who is listening to me, just use the social media platforms and amplify the voices of Afghan refugees and Afghan women, like everyone what's happening in Afghanistan, just amplify their voices, sharing their stories, share those stories. My work includes bringing local voices from Afghanistan and lobbying them and sharing them like with policymakers in the UK. So we are doing a lot of storytelling um, that you can find on our social media platforms as well. So if you type Chadari Project, for example, on Instagram, you will see all these stories. So you can definitely share that, those stories. But there are so many other um, online news that you can also see. How
0: do you stay connected to the work that's being done on the ground?
1: One of the ways that I stay connected still that what's happening on the ground is that since the collapse of Afghanistan, my advocacy efforts have tripled. I feel responsible. I honestly have the survival guilt. So I just keep talking to them and like hearing their experiences. They're, they're being stuck at home. So I really feel guilty sometimes of doing things. Yeah, so how I actually stay connected with them is that I bring those local voices um in Afghanistan to policymakers. So I one of the tools that I usually use is storytelling. So I use storytelling as a tool to amplify the messages and the voices of Afghan girls in Afghanistan and and not only Afghan women in Afghanistan but also among the refugee communities. So um uh, a lot of refugees who are in the UK since the collapse of Afghanistan, they have been stuck in hotel rooms. Um, So one of my friends actually, who came after the collapse, she has five children and she was in a hotel. She's still in hotel, like it's been more than two years. And it's so, obviously it leads to a lot of like mental health, a lot of other issues. So that's another part of my work when I amplify the voices of refugee women, Afghan refugees to share their stories. So I think I use the storytelling a lot in my advocacy efforts from Afghanistan and also from the refugee communities. Right now, I think what we can do is to keep the hope alive for Afghan women and girls. And that's honestly the least that we can do, right, through our work. Just saying a few positive things to them. And and I'm doing that through online um, programming. So we have some online programs. Like, for example, we are teaching public speaking to the Afghan girls. um, So it's very, very inspiring to see them despite having problems, like they don't have electricity. A lot of times they have internet connections, but they still come online and they find that they kind of seek refuge in that programming, like in that online space. Uh, So it's very, it's very motivating. It's very heartwarming, like seeing them coming and um, showing their bravery and resilience and determination. They're very inspiring, actually, very inspiring. Uh, they inspire me. Some people ask me, like, what do you do? Like, what inspires you? And I'm just saying, like, the women and girls, like these women and girls who I see every day who are in Afghanistan, and who are actually continuing their, like, education by attending secret, either secret schools or online programs or anything that they can to continue, keep learning. They're thirsty for education in Afghan women and girls. And I think that thirst motivates me. Yeah. That thirst keeps me going.
0: I mean, using the tool of Internet is such a cool new resource that couldn't have been done, you know, a few decades ago. With your experience on the ground, what political discourse have you come across among Afghan women, especially in response to the Taliban rule? Do the Taliban have any substantial backing from women? If not, how do women politically stand against the Taliban and resist? Do they just talk about it at home? Is it in writing? Is it in poetry?
1: First of all nobody's happy with the policies that's happening in Afghanistan. Everyone wants to go to school, everyone wants to go to university, everyone wants to provide for their families and to be able to work and be able to like be present in public or go to the park like which is like a very basic human human right right going to a park access to there. So, everyone wants to do it and nobody is happy. Like, no Afghan women um, is happy. I can definitely see that. And so, how they are resisting with those policies is that they are protesting on the streets uh, despite being detained and arrested. And uh, the, the teachers have turned their homes into secret schools. So, they're still continuing that work with, despite being paid, like, they're doing it voluntarily. And uh, people have turned to social media. To raise awareness so they're using hashtag let afghan girls learn to tell their stories and everything on social media and because that's a safer route uh, actually one of uh because one of our focuses is on storytelling so we're also sharing the poetry of afghan women who are expressing their feelings and frustrations and, and their thoughts and kind of using it as an advocacy tool uh, and i would love to read one yes. uh yeah it's from atifa ibrahim uh, from kabul a brave um or one of our bravest um Afghan women, Afghan girls. uh, She's saying, uh, I am an Afghan, but I'm not to be left behind. I am a poet, but I'm not a writer of hate speech. I am a world citizen, but I'm not against human rights. I am an Afghan, but I'm not a Talib. Why would the world, why does the world not listen to me? Why does it seem I am forgotten? Any hope? Any dream? Yes, the world will stay united. We will be saved. I am an Afghan and a citizen of the world who will fight not just for a peaceful Afghanistan, but for a peaceful world. So, they are exactly like Afghan women and girls are using uh, poetry and storytelling as, as a form of resistance as well. And yeah, so they're sharing videos of themselves uh, through singing, through again sharing their stories and poetry and, and um, sharing a social media, circulating it uh, with the hope that it will be heard um, by the world. And um, a lot of women have turned to alternative g- income generating uh things like, for example, vocational training, right? Because they've lost their jobs and it has had devastating impact, especially for women who are heading their households and, um, yeah, and who are widows and they don't have other choice. So it's it's very devastating, uh, the situation, but, but they are fighting back. They're not staying silent. So a lot of the times we see this stereotype about Afghanistan and Afghan women as women who are passive victims with no voice, no agency. And I think that Afghan women and girls, especially after the collapse of Afghanistan, threw into the world that uh, we are not silent and we are not staying silent and we are doing anything that we can. That is so inspiring, too. I'm, I'm
0: sure hearing these stories after story of people resisting any way that they can, it sounds like that fully is the opposite of the narrative that we see in the news of people being small and passive and going along with it, but people are fighting to yep. have their voices heard and their rights returned back to them, like fighting for that change. And that's, yep. that's beautiful. In light of the widespread wave of Islamophobia in the Western world, many tend to associate the Islamic rule with the oppression of women, often citing examples such as the situation in Afghanistan under the Taliban rule, how do you counter this stereotypical perception of Islam
1: in the West? I think that's my personal life mission is also to like dismantle that stereotypes. And uh, I'm actually on a board of an organization called What Hijab Day, which uh, wh- whose mission, which is based in New York and uh, which operates in over one hundred and fifty countries. And the mission of the organization is to dismantle Islamophobia um, globally. So I think that's such an important mission and I'm supporting that even through my own activism, through my own advocacy, I'm a practicing Muslim myself. So I think that's such an important part of the misconception and misunderstanding that people have of Afghanistan in general, of like Muslim world and everything. And I think one thing needs to be clear that what is happening in Afghanistan, the policies and everything that is happening there, has nothing to do with our beautiful religion. Our religion is a religion of uh, that promotes education, that uh, promotes women's rights, that gives the women every right that they want, they they need. That everything is so clear and uh, yeah, so it's a religion of peace, of justice. Um, it's a beautiful religion, I think. That's something that needs to be amplified, and, um, and the first word actually that was revealed in the Quran was um, in our book was read um, read, which which again emphasizes the power of, and the, the, the importance of education in our Islamic teachings. How does Islam inform your activism? Everything I do in life, uh, including my activism, I try my best to do it through Islamic lens. Our religion is so beautiful that it's a way, it's not a religion, it's a way of life. It teaches you everything, everything, how to live, how to eat, every, like everything that you can think of. We already have guidelines for that. We already have instructions for that. And obviously that includes ju- how to be just and how to fight for people, people's rights and how to raise their voices. And even now the advocacy work and activism that I'm doing right now, I'm involved in the work that I'm doing my intentions are to serve my community so that uh, God will be happy with me, you know, like that's exactly going back to that intentions so I always also need to be remind myself of what is my intention all the time because in our religion, intention is so important and it needs to be kind of linked back to our religion all the time, like okay, while you're doing this, um, because you're doing this for for God to be happy you know, and then obviously you have to you know, for, for God to be happy, you have to serve your people. You have to make people happy and like raise their voices and uh, fight for the injustice. So that exactly like that informs my work, my activism. And over 99% of Afghanistan is Muslims, um, Muslim population. Yeah. So it's both my personal kind of goal and life mission and my lifestyle, I would say, and plus the context of Afghanistan that kind of informs, um, goes back to religion, right? What is your
0: hope for Afghanistan as you're thinking of this country that you're building, the policies that you're fighting to change, is there a specific marker of change that would happen that would allow you to go back home to Afghanistan?
1: yeah so i'm i'm hopeful so there are two types of people that have come across in the activism space of, of afghanistan is like there are people who are hopeful like me and there are people who are who are almost losing their hope and they, they just don't have any hope for the future but i think for me i'm still hopeful i'm still hopeful that policies will, re- will be reversed and then we'll have a normal life and everything will go back to normal i will be happy and i will return to afghanistan when Afghan women and girls are given their basic Islamic rights, their Islam the, the right that God and Allah has given to them, right? Because God has given all the rights that they have taken away from them, the right to education, work, study, being pub, being present in the public sphere. it's It's a basic Islamic right. So I think the day that the Afghan women and girls will be giving that right, then I think that we have achieved change. Thank you. Thank you
0: for listening to today's episode with Shweta Muhammad-Ishak. Before you go, we want to hear from you. Share your questions, stories, or ideas on the fires you see in the world today. Contact us on Instagram at Croc School or via email at istheworldonfire at gmail.com. And let us know, what is your fire? Today's episode was produced by myself, Leah Appleby, Hallie Schilling, Obaid Khan, and with special help from Scott Lundergan and Ryan Murphy. It was edited by Jim O'Connell and includes original music by Victor Daniel Castro Escobar. Promotion is made possible by Kevin Dobbins, Tony Campos, Andrew Byros. Tune in next time.